Hello again to everyone. My name is Caroline Elliott. I am the manager of adult programs here at the Hirshhorn. Uh, today's talk is about uh, the upkeep of outdoor sculpture. And to get things started off, I'm going to introduce Gwen Ryan, who is our sculpture conservator. Hi, I'm Gwen Ryan. I am the sculpture conservator here at the Hirshhorn. And I've uh, been able, very, very fortunate to uh, have uh, assistance every summer. We have an outdoor sculpture conservation program that's actually been in existence since the early 1980s. And it is uh, sort of a prerequisite, in a way, uh, for conservators prior to getting into graduate programs to have a sufficient number of hands-on hours. And so while you think that working out in the heat on outdoor sculpture, um, getting very grungy would be something that people would want to be paid very highly to do. <laughs> we get um, we get quite a number of applications for our little minuscule stipend that we offer. Um, this year we had over 60 applications, and behind me are three of the uh, the awarded uh, interns. We have uh, Caitlin Richardson. Nick Kaplan, who actually this is his second summer with us, and he endured a full year with us as well in between the two summers, and Kara Teeter, and they are going to talk with you a little bit about some of the projects that um, we've been able to work on this past summer. So we head down to the sculpture garden, and we can pick it up from there. So there's often a misconception with the outdoor sculptures, sorry, um, because they're big and bronze and outside, that they can just, they're okay, and it's sort of a durable material. But actually the bronze is very reactive material, and um, the, the patinated surface is really this controlled oxidation that gives it its color. And all of that being out here in the garden is exposed to the elements and rain and humidity, extreme heat, and like bird droppings and all kinds of things. And, not to mention the public, which also interacts with the sculptures. Um, and it can all be very harmful to the vulnerable surface. Um, so what we do is try and both clean and protect the, the sculptures through a sort of annual treatment program. Um, so to do this, we start by washing it with Orvis, which is a non-ionic surfactant that we use in safe and safe to use and environmentally friendly so we don't have to worry about any of the sort of containment um, issues that we would have to if we were using a more aggressive solvent. Um, and after we clean it, we uh, will identify areas where the patina has been damaged at all and um, go in with a torch and heat up that area and then locally apply a toned wax which will protect the area specifically but also kind of mask the damage um, and hopefully like blend it kind of back into the original patina's appearance. Um, after that we then will go over the whole thing with a very thin layer of clear wax which again protects it and we have to buff that out so that it really kind of to compress the wax into a kind of adhesive consistent layer over the entire sculpture. Um, and there are more we use wax because it's it's safe and it's easy to apply and there are more um, durable coatings that could be used but because like they do things like lacquers or other coatings but because we're outside and there's the public we can't really um, it would be impractical to like deinstall the sculptures every so often to like spray them or erect any kind of containment area around it um, 
And, uh, but some of the sculptures, they require kind of more intense treatments and talk about it. So we started off our summer by working on this piece by Arnaldo Pomodoro. Uh, Pomodoro is an, is an Italian artist born in 1926. His sculptures are usually made of bronze, and his most famous ones combine sleek geometric forms with this sort of mechanical design. Um, he's exhibited extensively throughout uh, Europe and the United States since the 1950s. Uh, his most famous works are variations of the one that you see here. Uh, they can vary in size, uh, intricacies within the designs, and uh, this work was made in 1963 to 1965. It's titled Sphere Within a Sphere, number six. Um, since its acquisition, there are no records of um, conservation treatment. So beyond uh, the washing process that Nick talked about, it's not likely to have ever been treated. Um, it's a hollow cast bronze piece with, as you can see, a highly polished surface. Uh, highly polished metal is very reactive. Uh, it's because there isn't an oxidation layer that acts like a form of protection for the metal. So the metal has to be given a layer of protection, in this case, a lacquer coating. Um, we use lacquer because it's more durable and longer lasting than wax. So it's that extra level of protection for a highly polished surface. When we first examined the work, um, we found that the original lacquer was highly degraded, making it cloudy and dingy. And that really contrasted with the artist's original intent. It's supposed to be super polished and it's supposed to have this big contrast between the inner sphere and its outer surface. Um, what we also noticed was that the surface is covered, was covered in oxidation products, scratches, and in some cases, etched fingerprints. Uh, these issues all culminated to um, an appearance that was less than positive. Um, so we started by determining that the best treatment would be to remove the degraded lacquer. That way we could assess the actual surface of the metal. Uh, we did this by using a commercial 3M product called Safest Strip. It's a semi-paste designed to remove varnish and paint using mild solvents. Uh, upon completing this step, we discovered that actually the metal wasn't in such a horrible state. It retained a nice polish. Um, I have a couple pictures. The first one is uh, the textured surface um, after using the, the 3M Safest Strip. Uh, so after we removed the lacquer, uh, the next step was to determine how we were going to polish the surface again. Uh, when we contacted the artist foundation, they suggested using a polishing wheel. But actually that would alter the work um, because it's a highly intensive polishing technique. Uh, you can actually remove the metal and alter the overall surface um, of the sphere after time. Uh, what we did end up using was rouge, which is ferric oxide. Uh, it comes in a little brick and you use solvents, wipe, wipe it on a cloth and polish the material with it. You can see one of our polishing tests. Um, such a mild polishing technique is actually really beneficial, but it does come with its problems too. Uh, one of them is that you can't remove the signs of age. The, 
scratches, the etched fingerprints, the oxidation, uh, pitting that I mentioned earlier. And with that, you know, you have to accept your pros and cons with any treatment um, to remove original surface and bring it back to its original highly polished surface or accept the signs of age and maintain original surface. In this case, we went with the least invasive technique. Um, the next step was to repatinate the interior surfaces. We did this for two main reasons. Uh, to cover some of the bright green corrosion spots and to emphasize the contrast between the spheres, which was the artist's intent. Um, once we did that, we relacquered the surface using a spray-on lacquer. Uh, to do that, it's a really uh, intense process because you don't want visitors to come around. We're, we are in the outside and we are in a public space. So we had to section off uh, this whole area of the garden while we sprayed it on. Um, we use uh, wax to protect the inner surfaces. Um, and we did that mainly because the surfaces, because they're different levels and planes, um, the lacquer can stipple and change the texture. We also found that while we were doing all this treatment, we wanted to do as much research as possible. So we used uh, XRF analysis to analyze the composition of the metal. We tried using FTIR and mass spectrometry to um, analyze the original lacquer. What we found was the lacquer was actually uh, compromised, so we couldn't necessarily tell exactly the composition. Can you talk a little bit about what those processes are that you were you were going to try? Sure. Types of analysis. I'm sorry. Yeah. 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 Um, so FTIR analyzes um, organic organic compounds, and XRF can it shoots an X-ray into the metal, and by its reflecting, um, you can tell what compromises the metal. So, if in this case copper was the main element in it, so um, it basically gives you a spectra of what's in it, and if it uh, has more of a composition in it, the peak will be higher. So you treat yeah, it with yeah. like that? So basically, XRF stands for X-ray uh, fluorescent spectroscopy, and what you're doing is you're shooting an X-ray in, and based upon the, you know, each uh, element, the metal ions, as they're excited, there's a an ejection of the uh, electron, and it basically is a certain measured amount for each of those metal components. So you're looking for copper, you're going to get a really specific peak in this spectra. Okay. So you can identify what type of alloy it is. And of course, the copper was very high in this because bronze has a very high uh, uh, copper component. And so then the FTIR is for your transform infrared spectroscopy. We like to condense <laughs> it down because it's a mouthful. But that's really looking at organic compounds. So the lacquer coating, anything that um, uh, is made up of organic materials, it's measuring the vibrations of the bonds of the molecule. So you're really looking, rather than at what the elements are, at what the molecule is. So it will tell you, you know, we're, I think we were looking at some sort of cellulose, like either cellulose acetate or cellulose nitrate in this. And what is interesting, the reason we really wanted to analyze this, this lacquer was this was fabricated in, was it 1965? 1965. 
We acquired it in 1966, and then there was no record of it being treated. So there was a very high likelihood that this was the original lacquer, and we wanted to have as much information. You know, understanding the lacquer has to be replaced and, and rejuvenated over time, so it's not something that we can preserve and retain on the surface. But at least, and from a conservator's standpoint, you're wanting to retain as much information about the artist's working um, techniques and methodology, and so we're we're retaining that um, as sort of a record of what we removed. Great, thank you. And then Kira's going right. to talk about. And if I could have everyone follow me down the stairs, we are going to head over to uh, the Alexander Calder piece, and I'll talk to you about painted surfaces. Alexander Calder piece. Um, it was last repainted in 2002. And for painting pieces, there are a few considerations that we need to look for before um, repainting any surface. The paint, as Nick mentioned earlier, with the wax for the, the bronze pieces, would uh, the, the wax would protect the bronze pieces from weathering and other elements. The paint does um, the paint for this piece does the same thing. It protects the metal underneath. In this case, it's steel um, from corroding and from other elements. For for the painted pieces, because it also provides an aesthetic component to the work, before addressing any conservation for the painted surface, you need to look at the artist's intent. You need to see what the application method was that the artist used, if they sprayed it, if they used brushes, if they rolled it um, on the surface. You need to look at the color, and you also need to look at um, whether it was a sheen, like a high gloss, or if it was a matte. Um, there are a couple problems associated with this. Over time, colors of certain paints will fade. Um, and if it's a high gloss, in, in some cases, the gloss will also reduce over time. Um, and in the past, there, there were certain objects that were repainted by uh, painting companies that didn't have a conservator overseeing the work. And so they may not have been repainted with the, um, the same type of paint as the original. And so you, before repainting a surface now, conservators really need to look at, they need to research and analyze um, the original intention of the artist and the original paint material before resurfacing anything. Um, as I mentioned previously, this piece was painted in last in 2002. Um, there, it's been about 11 years since that time, and so it, will need um, to be readdressed in the near future. In certain areas along uh, the joints and in the areas where the metals overlap, um, after it rains or after the, the metal gets wet, those areas tend to take the longest amount of time to dry. So in the areas where the metals overlap, um, when that, get, when that section gets wet, it takes the longest amount of time to dry, and those areas are the most susceptible to corroding over time. And in this piece, you can, um, you may not be able to see it from a distance, but there is actually um, certain areas where it's beginning to corrode, the paint's beginning to crack um, and pop off the surface. You may be able to see it right here, 
um, there's there's three areas where that has happened on the flatter surface. Um, another problem is that the paint may stain um, over time as well. You can see that happening where the bolts are and then um, streaks down the, the side, the planar elements. Um, for comparison, if you were interested on your way back out of the garden and up to the museum, we do have another Calder piece. Um, that, that piece is called uh, Two Discs. It was repainted in 2007. Um, and so you can take a look at that and compare it to this piece. You also might be interested in looking at Tony Smith's Throwback, which was repainted in 2011. Um, that one is uh, painted on aluminum. And the other called a piece like this one is painted on steel. So. Do you want to talk just quickly about the issues with paint changes over time in terms of manufacturing? Oh, that's, thank you, thank you. And um, in, in addition to addressing the, the original paint um, issues that I mentioned previously, there's also, um, you have to take into consideration how painting manufacturing has changed over time. Um, the early and the mid 20th century paints that were used for a lot of older pieces um, may not be readily available in the market today. And that's because the government regulations have, have um, caused some of the formulas for these paints to change over time. And so you need to find a paint, if, if you can't find the original, um, and you need to find a substitute, you need to make sure that the standards for that paint match what, your, what the original um, paint exhibited and so that you can find a substitute that adequately represents the artwork for the artist's original intent. Yes? So that must be a slippery slope. How do you decide that the artist's intent, I mean, if he has an expressing intent other than the piece of art, which has changed greatly, maybe the intent was for it to sort of degenerate? Um, well, with certain artists, that is the case. Um, certain artists do have different intents. Some want their works to remain the same over time. Others actually produce the work with the intention that over time it will change. Um, with with this piece, I. Well, I, yeah, I, I think this say, would yeah, be a good yeah. so, <laughs> transitioning. So actually, this is a really good, this is a, a topic that's being discussed a lot right now in um, outdoor sculpture. It's kind of the, the like hot topic of the decade. Um, what is difficult for conservers to accept, and because we're all about being able to conserve the original, is painted artworks, you have to replace the paint. That's just the part of the artwork. There's no way that this paint is going to withstand hundreds of years. Paint is meant to only last, and in paint industry standards, what it means to last is can be very different from art standards in terms of the aesthetics, but it's really only gonna withstand the, the outdoor elements for about 30 years. So you're looking at a repainting cycle, and it's more frequent when you think about the aesthetics. I mean, the staining from the bolts, that's actual zinc, because um, the bolts are galvanized, so the zinc is staining the paint. You've got the you know bird droppings and then the losses and the inclusion. I mean, the, all those things take away from the artwork. So we actually look at a repainting cycle every 15 years or so. Now, as Kira pointed out, a lot of the works in the Hirshhorn collection were repainted 
during a time when that didn't necessarily fall under the auspices of conservation and there wasn't as much oversight or um, retention of, of information of what you were removing. So much of what we do is actually, you know, we're looking for any trace of original material through, you know, going through cross sections, seeing if we can find anything. The Artist Foundation, historic records, historic photographs. We're working right now with an artwork where we have pictures from when it was manufactured and we're trying to blow up the picture to get a sense of like, because the artist has specified you must use a brush. Well, why? And then we're seeing these strokes that are very directional and very thick. And so it clearly he wanted to have that look. Well, we wouldn't spray then. So there, the decision making process about how you're applying it, the sheen, the color. Again, what Kiara pointed out is that the look of old, uh, the look of paints that were available in the early 1920s or the mid-1920s look very different from some of the paints that are made now. So these are all part of the, the discussion when you're going into repaint a work. So do you think the new Well, yeah, definitely. The high-performance paints that are available right now are by far superior to what was available. Um, but the look is different, and there's also the method, right, and the method of application is different for some of them. Some very high performance paints that mean you don't have to repaint so frequently are spray application only, so that wouldn't work for some that where it is required to be hand painted. Yeah, I think that the, the, the approach is differs just as it would in any conservation lab approach going from one um, museum to the next. However, there are foundations, uh, artist foundations that, um, in fact, Calder is a perfect example of a foundation that has very strong opinions about what they feel is appropriate. The interesting thing is that it doesn't always match with what a conservator feels is appropriate to do to an artwork. So there's a, definitely a dialogue that goes on. We're in touch with the Pomodoro Foundation regarding that artwork, in touch with the Calder Foundation when we are repainting their works. And the dialogue differs just as they would from one, you know, if you were talking to one artist to the next. Right. Um, but that's good. Yeah. <laughs> yes, Clark. What do you do if a work is 50 or 60 years old? and it was originally painted with a brush or painted with a roller, but the paint you would choose to use now because of its longevity mm -hmm. can only be applied with spray gun. Right, that's exactly which, what we, yeah. Which would mean the artist's day, even if it was a byproduct of the process of mm -hmm. brushing or rolling, it still is going to have small ridges and textures or exactly. whatever about that application, is there a possibility that the piece could end up looking as if it were too perfect? Yes, and actually it brings up two really good points. So right now we're looking to repaint a work by Caro. And that's what I was saying is in the records is very clear he has specified it must be by brush. And in looking at pictures and he says oh, uh, with a wet edge, unthinned, it's clear that when you look at the pictures there's these big um, brush strokes in it uh, that because the, the paint is so thick it's not leveling and he wanted that. And I've been in dialogue with the foundation which has actually been recommending that I spray. Saying no but I have very clear evidence that I, I should be doing this with a brush application. That means that I can't use as high performance a paint as I would if it were sprayed on. But it does mean that I can lower cost by doing it myself with a paint that I could then rejuvenate, like in a in a shorter period of time. But that's a and in fact, um, 
with the, we have a piece and it's in the gal, no, is it, yes, it's in the gallery right now uh, by David Smith Agricola, which I'm looking over here because it's usually installed right over there, that had been painted a red oxide by the artist after, years after it was fabricated. Uh, David Smith was notorious for making an artwork and then painting it and then changing the color and a lot of times it was sort of arbitrary. He was storing them outside and it was just his means of kind of protecting the metal. So there was a lot of discussion when we needed to repaint that. Like, well, we're repainting it red oxide, which was what it, the color it was when it came into the museum. So there's rationale for that. But over time, that red oxide choice had changed so much. And so it was like, well, what does red oxide mean? So we went and looked at other works by David Smith to see, well, what would he have had maybe in his studio at the time? Because he was just grabbing what he had. Then there's, well, he was clearly applying it by hand and we're spray applying. And unfortunately, that one, and I'm saying unfortunately because I feel like it was not the most ideal choice, but in terms of the time constraints and the time that we had to get this, again, reality kicks in a lot of times where you're trying to get something on display. We did spray apply it, and it didn't look so different from the last time it had been applied, but I'm sure it looks very different from the way that it was applied by Smith. And so that, you know, unfortunately we don't have any evidence of that, but that's something that um, I'm putting in my documentation as I don't, I think this is something that needs to be, continue to be revisited. So it's, it's definitely a, a conundrum for a lot of institutions right now. A question about the Pomodoro. When the artist finished it, did he or was he present when it was lacquered? I mean, ideally, would it be left as bare metal, as polished as it could be, as he perceived it? And the lacquer is a, a necessity because it's outside? Mm -hmm. Or did he know about and acknowledge? Because a lacquered highly polished bronze areas is very different looking mm -hmm. than raw metal. Mm -hmm. Did he right. know that was coming and just kind of incorporated in his aesthetic or did okay. he, was that something that's a necessity that happened well, down the road? I think with the way that a, a foundry um, operation typically, and again I'm just speaking, this is not a topic that I've actually addressed with the foundation as to my knowledge of the way that a foundation a foundry um, works with highly polished metals is if you don't put a lacquer coating on it that polish goes away like that so that's kind of a standard you make the piece you lacquer it he might have specified I, I don't I you know if he had specified it must be by brush it was by brush um, that he would have that the lacquers would be applied I don't know if he hand applied it but it has been specified that it's that a brush apply is how it would have originally been done. And we do have evidence of, um, in uh, when we were examining it, that there were highly polished areas where you, that were retained just by a brush stroke and the areas around it were oxidized, which is indicative of that being where that lacquer was less degraded, that one brush stroke was less degraded, that maybe it was a thicker brush stroke than the brush stroke next to it. So we were having evidence that the lacquer was definitely brush applied um, prior, like the last time. We spray applied it because brush applying is, um, the lacquers that are available today do much better 
when they're spray applied is very difficult to do and we had to um, hire someone who was very specifically trained to do that because it's not an easy process. But you will get a, a more uniform and less plasticky looking um, lacquer. We're not using cellulose nitrate that you know, is easier to brush apply. The, the lacquers now are, are easier to spray. So um, I don't know if I answered your question. But well, basically- Is there any evidence, for instance, that some areas of the polished bronze were, were more polished than other polished, than other areas? Or is it simply the patented areas versus the polished? It's, it's, yeah, it's the textured areas versus the polished areas. Those are gonna respond, they're gonna respond differently to the lacquer. They're gonna respond differently in terms of their reactivity to the oxidation. So a polished surface is just like, it wants to be like, no metal wants to be in that state. It wants to be oxidized. That's why putting a patina on a bronze actually stabilizes the bronze because it's now it's happier than if it were this unoxidized surface. So with a polished surface, you've got to put something on it if it's outdoors. Otherwise, it's just going to... There are no little polished areas where you polished it more than other areas. Just sort of a little moments of... Not, I don't know, I, I, I can't see that that, that has, was the case. One, one thing that was interesting, and I think the picture went around um, of the Pomodoro when it was in process, it looked, it looked unpolished and kind of dingy, and that was really the old lacquer. When we removed that lacquer, just, by, just with the, the gel treatment, the solvent, and it was like a mirror surface. And when we had contacted the foundation, they had said, when you remove the old lacquer, you're probably going to need to repolish it. And they gave instructions for using a buffing wheel and really getting in there and making it bright. And that would have reduced some of those scratches. But to really get rid of those, we would have had to go so deep in the metal that you're actually pro you risk kind of deforming the sphere. And so the thought was, well, you know, it's so bright, just the rouge is, is enough. And so there wasn't, um, what you see there is kind of what was there when we un- uh, you know, took the old coating off. So it's really not very, you know, just the removal of the coating made that difference so intense that it wasn't necessary to go in and, and really polish. So that was a minimal change to that in terms of, of what we did in terms of polishing. Is that? Okay. Any more questions? Thank you guys for doing a great job. Awesome. Also, people are hungry.